Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. The author and activist Shane Claiborne is the founder of The Simple Way in Philadelphia and president of Red Letter Christians. He was in the UK last month to launch the UK arm of Red Letter Christians and to talk about his new book, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence co-written with Michael Martin. I spoke to him. We're over here launching the Red Letter Christians movement here in the UK, which uh, you know refers to the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus highlighted in red. And we've been doing this all over the United States for about 10 years, just saying we, uh, we, we need a Christianity that, that takes Jesus seriously again. And ironically, I mean, that would seem like a no-brainer, but you know, it was Gandhi who was asked... Uh, about Christianity, he said, "I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians took him more seriously." And uh, that's um, that's what we're doing, and, and it's been great. You know, Ash Barker's the director over here, but we've been with uh, communities. We'll be with communities all over the UK, and seeing uh, diverse leaders and folks that uh, just don't, don't maybe kind of don't have a home in, in, in a lot of the other political parties or movements, but really see that our faith needs to engage the real social issues of, of our day. As Karl Barth said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to have the newspaper in the other, you know, and that, that's why we're also addressing knife uh, violence over here. We've been melting guns down all over the U.S., so that's what we're doing, you know. We've had 37 cities that we've uh, taken donated guns and turned them into garden tools inspired by the uh, prophetic vision of Mike and Isaiah. They'll beat their swords into plows. Um, and over here, you know, this was a invitation that that uh, just thinking, you know, let's let's pay attention to the the lives that are being impacted by knife crimes and violence. And uh, we had an opportunity to take dozens and dozens of those knives off the streets that have been confiscated. And some of them are knives that were used in crimes. And and uh, man, we had hundreds of folks. Um, uh, and knew them that you know we young people, old people, all different cultures, just beating um, on these knives and turning them into something more beautiful. Turning them, in, and some of these are like you know like, gosh, two feet long, you know, or you know some some folks have said in the U.S. is this just symbolic? And it's it's it is symbolic in one sense, like we're transforming a piece of metal from something that is designed to kill into something that is designed to inspire and cultivate life. But um, it really goes a lot deeper than that. And there, there's a, a space that it creates to honor people's pain and grief. It's kind of a public lament of, um, of the violence that, you know, um, um, hurt so many people and t- take so many lives. Um, so we've had, you know, in the U.S., we had one woman that, I mean, we've had so many experiences at the Forge, but mothers that will just wail as they are beating on this gun, remembering their their child that was killed. But then we've also, had, we had one guy that beat on the gun 18 times and then later told me that was for the 18-year-old who I killed when I was younger. So there's kind of folks that have been impacted in, in a lot of different ways by ni- knives or guns. Um, and, and what we're holding out, the faith is that God's healing both the victims and the victimizers. You know, that we want, this is not just, uh, you know, uh, to call out, you know, violent people. But this is to go, man, we want to stand in solidarity with those who have suffered. But we also hold out hope that God heals 
uh, violent hearts. And we've got a lot of testimonies. Uh, you know, we personally, each of us, is a testimony of what God's grace can do. But you look at Saul of Tarsus, and he was a terrorist for the first chunk of his life. David, uh, who I learned in Sunday school, was a man after God's own heart. No, he raped a woman and killed, had her hus- husband murdered. Um, Moses killed a man. So we believe in a God that um, um, uh, redeems sinners and even, even folks that have taken someone's life. And you have this book coming out, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. I've read the book, really enjoyed it. I was struck by, I think you recount your experience growing up in the South yeah. of guns. I mean, this is something you're very familiar with, the culture where people owned guns, people went hunting. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we had guns. Uh, most of my family still owned guns. We, I mean, we had guns, but they were for hunting, you know, and I mean... I know it's probably, you don't have a lot of squirrel eaters over here in the UK, but I ate squirrel growing up. You know, we went hunting, and then, but we also, I began to see that, uh, you know, I mean, we, we also had this kind of meshing or uh, conflating of Christianity and guns. We have, you know, songs that say this house could be protected, or this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun, and if you come uninvited, you'll meet them both, son. You know, so, I mean, this idea that God and guns go together, so... Um, that, that's what we've, you know, why I addressed it is because um, two-thirds of Americans don't have guns. So only a third of Americans own guns. But what was stunning is that Christians own guns, white Christians in particular, own guns at a higher rate than the general population. Well, I think there's a lot of things. I think that there is um, fundamentally this is not just an issue um, – that is a political issue, but it's also a spiritual thing. And I think that we have created a form of idolatry. And I know I don't use that word lightly, but idols are things that we attribute God-like power to that are not God. And I think when we have forms of idolatry that affect our spirituality, instead of us worshiping, worshiping a God that makes us we are becoming more like our god we're actually worshiping something that is a a distortion of god that ends up making god more like us or more like we want god to be and 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 that's what idolatry is i mean the the head one of the heads of the nra the national rifle association said you would do better if you looked at the nra as one of the great religions of the world and there's certainly like this reverence for guns that it's hard to explain. I mean, you, you guys in the UK look over and you're like, what in the world? And some of us are going, you know, this, there's, it, it's not just a rational thing. There's something really deep when we see a gun um, and attribute God like, this is going to deliver me. This is going to keep me safe. This is going to help me be the man that will protect my family. And you hear these, the prophets going, no, like some may trust in ho- horses and chariots, but we trust in God. God is our deliverer, you know. So, And I think the gun and the cross give us two very different versions of power. You know, the, the gun says, I am willing to kill. And the cross says, I'm willing to die. And it's hard to reconcile those. I mean, the book, you contrast the Second Amendment, which obviously is seen as providing the kind of freedom and that allows people to own guns but you contrast that with the Sermon on the Mount and say these really aren't compatible would that be fair to say? Oh yeah yeah well and and you know I'm I'm very comfortable engaging the Constitution and the the Second Amendment in the U.S. I mean, it's probably more than you want to do over here, you know. And, and, and the fact that, like, when the Second Amendment was written, 
gun shot one round a minute, not a hundred rounds a minute, you know, and all, all sorts of other things. Well regulated, it is actually written into the Second Amendment <laughs> to make sure that there were limitations and regulations on guns. And so those are the parts that we've gotten rid of. So there's plenty. Of, but for Christians, we have a higher authority than the Constitution, and that is Jesus, and that's the Scripture. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that's really where our model and authority and our, uh, what, what should be shaping our ethics. Um, and, and so that, I think that's what's really problematic to me as well, is uh, we've done a better job at um, protecting the, the Second uh, Amendment than um, the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. We've been more champions of the, uh, of, of the Constitution than the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think one of the reasons some evangelicals in the U.S. are very pro-guns is because their theology of the cross and the gospel um, is, is, is sometimes quite violent, <coughs> and they think of God as violent and someone who, who meets out violence? Absolutely, no doubt. Um, and, and it's why I, my, my, the book I wrote before Beating Guns was Executing Grace, and it was on the death penalty, because what I also saw, even or just as explicitly, was that... Um, 85% of executions in America are happening in the Bible Belt. The only thing that has kept the death penalty alive in the United States are Christians. It has survived not in spite of us, but because of us. So that became very troubling that we have a theology that in the end has a very violent um, uh, uh, result you know, from it. And so there's there is yeah there's plenty of theology there i mean there's all kinds of other stuff like our residue of racism and slavery i mean the same states that hold on to the death penalty and love guns um, are also some of the states that have um, held on to slavery the longest you know so we those these things all kind of mixed together but i do think that's why we need some good theology and why we do a lot of theological work um in, in both the, the book on the death penalty and the book on guns, because it's, it's, this is a political crisis, but it's also a spiritual and moral crisis. Mm. You write about how stopping gun violence needs to be seen as a moral, spiritual, pro-life issue. It's interesting. Yeah, it, it is wild how narrowly we've defined what it means to be pro-life, and especially in America, I think, you know, to one issue. And we, we'd be more... Uh, accurate to say we're anti-abortion, you know, uh, or we're pro-birth, <laughs> you know, but but the pro-life movement is so conflicted in America because you have folks that so many evangelical Christians that are pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, and still say they're pro-life, <laughs> you know, but uh, that, so we, we want, and, and what Red Letter Christians has been about is building a movement that is consistently for life and that sees that abortion reducing abortion is very important to me um it it it, it, it is a life issue um, it was for the early church they had plenty of things to say about abortion but it's not the only life issue immigration uh, is a life issue the environment is if you're pro-life how can you be anti-world you know anti-environment how uh caring for black lives police violence uh, these things are all um uh, a part of, of uh, and certainly gun violence and the death penalty are uh, massive life issues for us. You talk about some of the myths about guns in the book. You say what a few of those, I think this is for campaigners um, for gun ownership and unrestricted freedom in that area. But when you campaign against, they, they, they say it, they come back to that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, what we hear a whole lot is that the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And it sounds suspiciously like someone that just wants to sell more guns. You know, like, we need more guns to protect us from our guns. You're like, 
That's like telling me I need, you know, more whiskey to solve my alcohol problem. You know, like, like that. The more you look at the data, the more um, it blows away some of these ideas. And I mean, there, there certainly are instances that you can argue and there's data that you can see that like guns have been used to protect people or stop a, a mass shooter, you know. But, but when you look at the, the ways that we're defending this, um, you can also argue that there are other things that were just as effective, and that's some of the studies that we show. Phones have just been uh, just as effective in disarming someone by recording um, or mace and um, even just, you know, running. Um, because in, in a lot of times, there's just as many cases, and uh, Gabby Gifford's case was one of those where the, 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 there was an, a man who had a good guy with a gun, you know, as you might say, that, that said if he had shot, he would have shot the wrong person it's very hard to tell in the chaos you know um who's who and and so anyway i i think um uh, some of the myths that uh are 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 out there are um that we don't have any laws around guns, you know, uh, or, or, or that we already have tons of laws around guns. You know, we don't need uh, any more laws. And the fact is it's one of the most unregulated industries in our country. That This is one of the things that stunned me. There are more regulations on toy guns than on real guns. And there's an immunity within the gun industry that is unprecedented. It's actually a, a legal immunity that they exploit, right? So if, if, if I shot you with a Nerf gun, a toy gun, you could sue Nerf, but you can't do that with the gun industry. You can't sue the companies or even if they clearly um, – are irresponsible, like, you know, selling to someone that is drunk or, you know, like violently coming into the gun shop. Like if, if I, if I worked at a rental car company, I sold you a car and you can't even walk, you know, right? it's just, so that, that this is a, yeah, this is what we're up against. Um, but I think the more people know, the more disturbed they become. And what was also, I'll just say one last one that was really important to us was that, um, gun owners are, are are the problem was the myth that we were dispelling and, and what we want to be really careful about is that one of the things that was interesting that we found is overwhelmingly gun owners want to see changes in our country um, when the NRA says they, they have definitely um, mono, they've colonized the narrative of gun owners in America but you know the NRA says we have five million members so even if we give them that what we have to hear is that over 90 percent of gun owners are not a part of the NRA and in fact an overwhelming majority find themselves at odds with the uncompromising extremism of the NRA you know 80 percent of gun owners want to see things like background checks and assault weapons ban many of them um, if you're on a no-fly list you should be on a no-gun list crazy ideas you don't even have to report stolen guns in our country <laughs> so like these things are it's or domestic abusers uh, that are convicted and we know have been have a history of violence being able to acquire uh, guns so those things like that's encouraging I think people need to know that you know one of our biggest allies has been gun owners against gun violence or there's um there's a group of hunters against assault weapons uh, and they, they have shirts that say you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer <laughs> a good hunter doesn't need 10 rounds right so I think that's where we got to create some uh, uh, we say a better conversation on guns and so if you own a, a rifle to keep coyotes off the ranch that doesn't mean that you think AR-15s should be able to go you know everywhere on our streets and in our neighborhoods yeah. in terms of how to solve this problem with gun violence I mean you seem skeptical in the book that you know, government is the answer that's simply making laws. 
is the way. Is that right? Well, I, I, I don't think, I think that when people say it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. We say it's both. You know, we could make every gun illegal and people would still find ways to kill each other. Someone used a pressure cooker to create the bomb that was used in the Boston Marathon. We've seen people use cars as weapons, drive them into crowds. So we can do horrific violence with almost anything. But the fact is there are some things that are designed to kill. And they are made, like an AR-15 is made to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's exactly what they keep getting used for. So they create our capacity to do so much damage. And that's what we're saying. We just want to see a limitation. So I do think that there is a room for, there, there's certainly, um, you know, God heals hearts and people change policies and laws. And we need both. Um, uh, uh, but what happened in New Zealand was really encouraging. We were on tour when the tragedy happened. Of course, it started out just stunning the world, breaking our hearts, you know, this terrible act of hatred um, targeting the Muslim community, killing so many, you know, dozens of people. And every night we would hit the a, a gun um, to honor the lives that were lost in New Zealand. But then as we did that, within days, changes are being made. You know, like the... Uh, uh, Prime Minister has this incredible courage, you know, <laughs> showed the United States what leadership looks like, you know, and they changed their laws, you know, on, on assault weapons. But they did, they also addressed the hatred, you know, and that was also powerful to say, like, this was not just a random attack. This was uh, Islamophobic hatred, hatred, act of hate, you know. So I, that, that's where I'd say we, we can do both. And, you know, here in the UK, I'm always reminded, like, you can have good laws, um, but there's still, we, we've got to talk about hearts as well, you know. And you can have great health care, but not have someone holding your hand when you're in the hospital. So th- these are not um, enemies of each other. We need good laws, and we also need, uh, we need love, and we need God to heal our hearts, and we need community as well. How much hope do you have for the US at the moment, given um, the country seems very polarized? You've got um, a president in the White House who um, doesn't seem particularly conciliatory towards you know, healing divisions and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, well we're we're definitely in a funk right now, you know. But the the, the it, it's been said that Donald Trump didn't change America; he revealed America. And I think it's also true of of white evangelicalism. He didn't change white evangelicalism; he just revealed it. He's held up a mirror, and and what we're seeing is very disturbing. Um, but he certainly has emboldened a lot of folks that. Um, were quiet and filled with hatred and racism, and we see folks marching on Washington. He jumps at every chance he gets to defend um, white supremacists and you know the good people on the other side of Charlottesville and those things, you know. And yet, like um, calls a black fo- calling Kaepernick a black football player, like kneeling down, you know, he calls them. I won't say it on your show, <laughs> but yeah. sons of bees, you know, and yeah. like you know, just uh, so I think that. What were Jesus said, the wheat and the weeds are growing together. And I told someone the other day, it just feels like someone spilled fertilizer on the garden. Like the good and the bad is growing. But I am so encouraged. Like it's hard to be neutral right now. And so people are talking about things that they haven't talked about. Um, And that's why we want to keep everybody grounded in Jesus. When we're talking about immigrants, let's make sure that we're remembering Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. 
If you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. We're talking like our country is held so hostage to fear right now. This gun stuff, at the end of the day, it's about fear. Our language about immigration is being rapists and murders. Actually, it's not our language. It's Donald Trump's language and a few other people, you know. But that language is such a fear-filled language. And yet, the Scripture promises that perfect love casteth out fear. So we need to claim those things. And we need to recognize that fear and love are enemies. They can't occupy the same space. And when fear is driving our policies rather than love, we're going to do really terrible things to people. So there are folks rising up all over our country, I think, that are saying we've got to choose right now between fear and love. Mm-hmm. And you, it's the simple way you're group or you're in philadelphia yeah so the the two feet i walk on are the simple ways our local work in north philly the community i've been a part of uh, for 20 years and red letter christians is kind of the movement work and um the we kind of the larger national international now work that we're doing i was struck in your book talking about some of the um I don't know how to describe it, kind of direct action or resistance to this that you've done. And you've had people come out who are really quite threatening and might have guns. And this is actually quite scary stuff to be. It's not just kind of um, letter writing. This is you're you're doing quite frontline work here. Well, I I, growing up um, became a part of the charismatic movement. And and I still have a lot of that belief that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in the world. Miracles happen. And but we also talked about spiritual warfare and we talk about spiritual warfare and i don't know that i've ever seen it much more clearly than in these events where um you can't explain why people are acting the way that they are like it doesn't even seem reasonable you know i mean and when someone like dylan roof walks in and kills a bunch of people a bunch of african-american brothers and sisters in the middle of worship like how can you say that that's anything more than evil and that there's something at work in it? It's also why I don't believe in the death penalty. I believe that, that like, like death is a problem, not the solution. Like violence is the problem, not the cure. And so um, there's something demonic and evil and dark about that. And when we're like literally at an event where people are sharing their stories. Someone in a wheelchair was sharing a story about surviving a shooting and folks are sharing about losing their kids. And folks with American flags flying and NRA badge, uh, you know, they're, they're yelling insults and hatred and racial slurs. Like, yeah, I, I look at that and I, I think, thank, thank God that the scripture says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Like, the, the, this is not just about that person right there but there's something much bigger going on and that gives me a little grace i still take it very seriously because i I mean i think you know just as god is able to use people in amazing ways i I think the the forces uh, the spiritual forces of darkness are able to use people in really terrible ways too so we that's why we're people of prayer um and action but we we in one of these events we um prayed the lord's prayer together because we um, didn't know, you know, these folks are shouting, they're yelling at us, they, we are, they had already posted, bring your guns, you know, on the web, all this stuff. So we just, um, we want to have a posture of humility. We didn't want to out yell them. Um, so we said, we're not here against you. We're here to grieve the violence of our streets. And then we just began to pray together and they began to sing on top of us, um, God bless America. And there was, it's one of the eeriest feelings I've ever had in my life where I felt like um, 
it's hard to even talk about without getting emotional because it was so deep what was happening. Like they're yelling on top of the Lord's Prayer, you know, like this God blessing America. So, yeah, I, I think of that and I think we these are spiritual forces as much as they're also political forces that are at work. And just find out, are you hopeful for the future? Oh, so hopeful. Yeah, I am. I know how the story ends. <laughs> And I know what we've survived before. And that's why, like, being with my brothers and sisters of color, um, folks whose ancestors were slaves, folks who have survived so much, people who, my neighbors from El Salvador, who, like, uh, lived through the Civil War and, and the terror of death squads and learned the gospel from Father Grande and Oscar Romero, you know, folks that, like, they know that God is with those who are suffering. And um, so that that's this, this story, you know, and the scripture is so clear that God is, you know, raising up the lowly and casting the mighty from their thrones and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. So we know that's the trajectory. And uh, God's been doing that for a long time. So God will deliver us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.